This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, uh, my name is Brandon Sword. I'm a host on the art channel of New Books Network. I am excited to be here today talking to um, Sandra Johnston, um, um, Brian Patterson, and uh, Alastair McLennan about a new publication coming out from Intellect Books uh, that is um, providing an overview of a lot of uh, McLennan's performance work over the past um couple decades. So um, one of the things that I was struck by, um, by perusing this um, book is how a lot of um, McLennan's work was made um, during the Troubles, this like period of, of, of unrest um, in Northern Ireland. And I was thinking about the current like, political moment uh, we find ourselves in with um, Brexit and uh, the possibility of like a reestablishment of this like hard border along um, the Irish Anglo um, the the border between Northern and, and Southern Ireland. So I was kind of curious about like um, like how the political current like political climate in the United Kingdom like influenced um, this book at all, or if you thought about that as you were going through all of this work and putting it together. Sandra, I think you should take that one. Okay. Well, well, Brandon, um, I think, yes, the the book is grounded in um, McLennan's practice in the 1970s and 80s during the the worst atrocities of the Troubles. Um, And certainly that that forms the baseline uh, for really sort of understanding the evolution of his practice, but then also um, as the book progresses and in the different chapters you'll see how it then um, kind of migrates into different contexts, uh, and you know we're we're speaking today in the midst of local elections, and you know in the background on the TV in the kitchen downstairs, there's um, a lot of kind of consternation and debate going on um, because like Northern Ireland continues to be in a state of precarity, and I think the, you know the United Kingdom, Scotland for sure, um, there's issues of independence that will um, revive. Um, uh, ongoingly, um, and today's elections will will certainly bring forward um, closer debate um, around dissolving the, the border of Ireland uh, and the border between the north and the south. So I feel like um, Alistair's practice has huge relevance not just to Northern Ireland, but it's always had huge relevance to um, the, the kind of whole cultural picture across the UK and Ireland and the way that these islands um and these nations are, are closely knit together in in very kind of contentious and complex ways. Um, so yes, I mean, there's um, you know, particularly in the introduction, you know, we're laying out um, the um, real value of the work in that the, the work Alistair made in Belfast in the 1970s. There's it's really very it, it stands out on its own. 
Um, nobody else was making um, performative practice, certainly not in public space and certainly not in full view um, of retaliation and consequences. So the idea of causality is very, very strong in Alistair's practice, and that's been consistent the whole way through the 50 years that we're representing. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a lot of these these issues, they're not like limited to the United Kingdom and Ireland. It's like I it's like I as like in like an American who didn't follow um, British politics very closely. It's like Brexit really hit me like it was like a ton of bricks. And then um, now, you know, it's like we had the election of Donald Trump in um, the U.S., um, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, like the recent Macron Le Pen election in France and um like in, in France, especially, it's like a huge, um, like part of that was these like political kind of like um, questions of um, like the, the, of like Europe, the European Union. Um, so it's like these like similar themes, but they manifest in these like really specific contexts. So it's like, obviously, it's like the relationship between the United Kingdom and Ireland goes back like hundreds of years Um well, I think it's important to say, too, in, in, in relation to performance art practice, that uh, often people feel that if it deals with politics, that it has to do it through big symbols and kind of like very obvious metaphors, you know. And I, I think, you know, uh, what's, again, something that's extraordinary about Alistair's practice is this poetical quality. And that's that's where we, we titled the, the main title of the book is Actional Poetics which picks up on the fact that, yes, there's an undercurrent of um, um, reaction and responsiveness and a a relation almost to actionism and that that history of performance art, Um, but just kind of keying into that word of poetics and the idea that you can do it through ambiguity, you can do it through speculation, um, rather than um, feeding people um, obvious kind of literal um, information and, and sort of putting them back in that position of, of, of feeling oppressed by an artwork because they feel like they're being told more of the same, you know. So I feel like Alistair's work is, is really is really important because it never falls into that trap of of preaching. It's not uh, it's not about a doctrine. But I mean, Alistair, you can say it much better than I can. Yeah, because it's always opening it up, like you know, more so than you know. It's seeing uh, it's. Uh... <clears throat> Although I've lived in, uh, uh, I've come to Northern Ireland uh, in 1975 and um, basically been living here uh, since then, but traveling a lot in different countries and making performances and so on. And uh, uh, I'm intrigued by... Uh, sameness within difference, difference within sameness, you know, in terms of uh, religion, politics and social conditions in so many different countries, you know, and there's different variations and combinations, but very often there's the same underlying issues. And if you want problems of binary thinking uh, rather than holistic thinking, uh, and um, I'm interested in the specificity of this in different countries, but at the same time, not wanting to get locked into just limiting uh, 
the how and the what of the work to specifics of only one country or one situation, you know, trying to find, if you want, uh, the local within the universal and the universal within the local. Mm. The notion of finding a continent within a fossil and a fossil within a continent. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah. This seems like a potentially really fraught of like how to um, like make work within a context that you have varying degrees of familiarity with. So you have you know like Roland Barthes. We were talking about France already, but writes um, mythologies about French culture and is like a, a really like brilliant book and then he he tries to write a, a similar book about like japan and it doesn't do very well he just he doesn't have the same kind of like familiarity with like these um these other cultures i don't know if this is something you think about or like worry about is you talked a little bit about it in terms of this like finding similar themes and finding like um like particular in a universal, universal in a particular. Well, again, there's like layers of an onion, you know, and in uh, spiritual, religious, political, social situations, uh, you can deal with surface layers or varying underlying layers, and you can begin to interfuse the layers also. And you can play with purposively, purposively ambiguities and pluralities of association so that viewers uh, won't just see the work and think, oh, that's that, you know, the, like a one-liner, wanting them to actually try to sense and trust their own intuition as to what perhaps this combination of aspects is conveying to them. And you want them to trust their own intuition with regard to what they're experiencing. Not not just knowledge, but uh, uh, direct intuition. You know, I want to work with emotions, the intellect, but intuition also. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's. Um, I'm kind of thinking about um, performance as a medium as being kind of caught in between or sharing in both um, like visual art, um, but also like theater <laughs> and how I feel like in the visual art land, there is a, a much greater like tolerance for like ambiguity um, and ambivalence than maybe there is in theater. Maybe I, I'm being an unsympathetic. We have very radical stuff within theater. We have Beckett, we have, um, but it's like if in the visual art world, it's like if someone's work is kind of like too readily digestible or something, it's like you you might call someone's work like superficial or like decorative, depending on the medium. Whereas like in theater, it's like, at least in kind of mainstream theater, if it's like, you know, if we don't understand like why a character is doing something, that's like a, pr a problem potentially that has to be solved. Um, so I, I come from like a, a theater 
background and I like work in performance. So like I think think about this um, a lot. I don't know if you like think about these things or if you've had like either like training, exposure, experience, if you keep up with um, theater or these debates. Well, I mean, a, a big factor of that is is where the work is placed. Um, and I think, you know, where performance art happens and the fact that so much of Alistair's work happens in the street, um, but not just casually, uh, you know, it's it's very precise. And I think a lot of performance art has this site specificity uh, and the, the power of place and the, the, the all of the information that um, an audience is is collecting and attuning to whenever they're in a specific location. I think that's a, that's a huge part of what's potent about performance art, that you're not putting people into a precious building necessarily, and you're not giving them all those um, trappings and expectations that create passivity. So it's it's like, um, I mean, I've often seen Alistair perform in situations of real jeopardy where it felt like, um, you know, uh, you know, in, incredibly uh, risky, um, what was happening, um, and then also that over very, very long durations. So I'm thinking, for example, of a 24-hour performance in a tiny village in the north of Poland in 1994, where, you know, Alistair was performing um, within um, an installation that he constructed in a, in a public square. And, and during the night, it got really volatile, really, really aggressive, um, and, you know, at several points it felt as if the installation was going to be, um, there was going to be a rupture um, and a kind of like breaking through. But what I find, like, you know, what I find personally extraordinary is that time and time again, the work um, actually um, pushes into this kind of like nervous system of tolerance and this idea of, of how and what we accept and under what rules and what of, of permission. You know, so I think um, I think the work really acutely um, looks at why you know these kinds of uh, these ideas of trespassing, these ideas of ownership, and those 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 layers that Alistair's talking about. That if you you know if you position it inside the museum with a big um, plaque beside it and you give it endless explanation, then yes, it does become um, pacified and it, be, it beca- its meanings become um, entrenched. But I think like a lot of the volatility comes from the use of space, um, which is certainly something that I learned as a practitioner from Alistair. Yeah. Um, Using using public space, using public space hmm. uh, where people walking down the street might come upon something and think, what the heck is this? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and wanting them to think and... try to get a sense over time as to what this might be conveying and be about. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm the inner interviewer, not the interviewee, but I would like to tell a short story. Um, but so I'm, um, a PhD candidate in, in sociology. And um, there is a sociologist named Harold Garfinkel, who would do these things he called breaching experiments, where people would violate social norms and see what would happen. So they would like go into an elevator. And then rather than everyone, normally an elevator, everyone turns to face the door. So they would go in and not face the door, they would face the people in the 
elevator and try and make eye contact with them or they would go to the store and buy something and they're like oh it comes to 449 and they're like okay but i want to give you like ten dollars for it and they're like no it costs 449 and they're like i understand but i think this is really great and i want to give you and people like break down like very quickly <laughs> and it kind of shows it's i was telling this to like an art history professor. And he was like, oh, I didn't know sociologists made performance art. <laughs> and it's it's kind of similar where there's like, um, it's the, the kinds of laws, the unspoken rules and assumptions that like govern like what social space, like what's acceptable and not acceptable to do. Um, even in like museum context, like I've done museum interventions with like a friend of mine and I don't know what it's like in Europe, in the U S you start doing something weird in a museum and everyone is like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? It's like when you've come to the place to where you is designed to, for you to encounter things that you don't understand, you're like, what's the explanation? Why are you doing this? Um, so, um, yeah, I'm reminded of kind of this, like the kind of fragility and also like endurance of a lot of these social norms that navigate, like, especially the way we use public space. But one wants to work to question perimeters and to question fixity. You know, yeah. I mean, it's been interesting in Northern Ireland how it's ex- expanded out through Bay Beyond. Um, and in a way, we've, we've really sort of taken the example of Alistair's practice and also um, some other practitioners, particularly like Boris Nilzoni in, in uh, Cologne in Germany. Uh, and this, this idea of, um, of open sessions and, and working collectively. So it's not just one isolated um, individual artist, but that, that idea of um, a, a kind of collective action. But Brian can say more. Yeah, it's, yes, because it, it, you know, taking just what Sandra was saying there, just taking on that idea from the, the idea of black market and Alistair is part of the black market people too as well. And so, you know, Be Beyond have set up doing per, uh, what we call just performance monthly. It was just a rather descriptive term, like, you know, because it was, you know, looking for a name for what, what, what do we call it? So um, we did, we've done performances every month from 2008, from the summer solstice, like, you know, so that's a kind of an ongoing thing. So, and that's very interesting, just, you know, you know, going into a public space and just making these performances, like, and so there's no, <clears throat> there's no rehearsal. It's just kind of improvised performances, and where sometimes like constellations come along and whatever. Like, but it's very interesting what the people, the general public, kind of come up come upon it. Like, and they th- they think some people think, oh, look, they just let them all out of the asylum in one day or something. That's what they can. But you know, you can, p- people are coming around to saying. I remember one guy uh, at a meeting, like you know, one time we had. Um, in 2008 like you know and he basically came or no it was after it was it was about it was 2012 he basically come to me and he said like you know um because the, at that day there was a, another protest march in, in in belfast against um racism like out there and then he basically come up to me and he said you know and, and we, we were talking in in the, in the performance and then he you know i want to go to shake hands and he wanted a big hug like you know he's just like you guys are doing no harm to no one like you know but it was just this kind of openness like you know that uh, and and the playfulness like you know that we kind of that allowed the, kind of the situation to kind of open and that's kind of i was thinking about that term the uh actional poetics like you know where's you know the poetry kind of opens things like you know so 
Um, so it's like opening the space for for others as well. Like you know, so it's, and so it's what they bring to it. You know, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. in a beyond situation, there may be uh, you know there can sometimes be a number of individuals who come and I mean what we've maybe agreed pre agreed mm-hmm. is the time of the group performance and where we'll do it. And individuals can come with some materials for the performance if they wish, or no materials. And um, none of us knows what the others are going to be doing or not doing. But there's, uh, it's based on a kind of trust and the notion of, you know, one's own self-discipline as an artist, but also being prepared to be flexible and adaptable as to what seems appropriate in relation to others who are there. Yeah. Um, one of the, I think this relates to one of the other issues I wanted to talk about, which was like authorship. Um, so I think that both in art world and like literary worlds, it's we're sort of attached to the idea of, of like an individual author, which um, can like cause problems perhaps when you have work that is very like collaborative or open or, or public. Um, Like how do we um, like know like what like is and isn't someone's work. So it's like for like in, in film, we have this like this auteur, theory of that it's like the film kind of like artistically belongs to the director like so it's like a like a roman polanski film it's a david lynch film it's a godard film um even though there's like dozens hundreds of other people who are whose labor and effort is going into like making that possible um so i was um or even like with when I write something and I, it's like, I'm the person, you know, like sitting in front of my word processor, like hitting the keys, but it's like their arguments, ideas that I've developed, like by talking to other people, by in conversation with editors and professors and mentors and um, so many others. And then, it comes out with like my name on it, but it's, it's feels this, it's like a, um, it's like, it feels both like <laughs> appropriate and inappropriate or something or um, so. Yeah. And if any, any thoughts about how that kind of individual collective played out um, either in your practice, Alistair, or in how the publication came together? Well, say in the- uh, I mean, I started out as a very traditional academic painter, you know, oil paintings of portraits and so on, and very traditional, very academic and so forth. Um, but I found certain real limitations within that. And uh, just like plants grow from the inside out, we're not just looking at them. They don't just grow from the outside in, from the inside out and wanting to make art that evolved from the inside and manifesting outwardly, but also um, wanting to question the parameters again of authorship. 
You know, for instance, maybe you might get some musicians who, uh, for instance, they play their instruments very skillfully, very well, but they might like getting coming together and improvising, like in jazz, you know, in certain forms of jazz. And a question I would have would be, so why can't painters, instead of just doing their own individual painting, doing that as well, but why not several of uh, painters getting together and making a work that uh, interfuses the creativity, the painterly creativity of several people making one work. And so they can share authorship, if you want, of the work. If musicians can do it, why can't visual artists also do it? So again, raising the question of the perimeters of authorship. That's a bit more like real life too as well. You know, because it's engaging with it, it's like you know, so it's not just kind of a closed situation where somebody's directing it. Like you know, there, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no like lead author. You know, so. mm-hmm. I'm reminded. I recently watched the Andy Warhol documentary on um, Netflix, where there are these collaborations he does with Basquiat, where they are like painting together, and it's really funny where it's like um, Basquiat's this like younger artist and he's like painting over like Warhol stuff. Like he doesn't in very different styles, um, but it, um, it sort of works together, but it's also, it, it's, it is very uncommon and it's someone like Warhol who it's like the basis of his career is kind of like this collective, you know, it's like he would get a book deal and put a tape recorder in the factory and like record conversations and then like send it off to um, be typed up and have that be the manuscript. He's very much like a, um, like a setting up a space within which like the factory people can, people can do things. Um, uh, I think, I think there's something to be said about Northern Ireland again, um, and particularly uh, Belfast as a context there's a there's a huge amount of um, um, artist-led organizations uh, and that's that's been the case since the early 90s but even before that um, Alistair was one of the one of the founders of arts research exchange um, which was funded by Joseph Boyce uh, and there is um, you know there is this legacy I think for us as artists to to look at like non-hierarchical models now, of course, you can you can critique that because uh, organisations very quickly do cement into like a, a set of rules, um, and to, to some extent, an ethos is necessary. You know, there ha- there has to be something that people congregate and agree around. But I think, like you know, we've all travelled a lot as artists, and I, I feel like Northern Ireland, and and perhaps it is to do with the consequence of the troubles and the, a deep conservatism that ruled the art world um, to the extent that experimentation was really completely unfunded and most artists were completely um, like blacklisted, you know, right right up through um, until the 90s. So I, I feel like this, this um, you know, and, and interestingly, um, the Turner Prize was won last year by Array, um, Array Studios, a collective from Belfast. So it's something that um, we've really engendered and we've really... Um, uh, in, inhabited and explored in a serious way this idea of, of working non-hierarchically and, and sharing resources and sharing talent and sharing um, you know sharing vision actually 
Yeah. I mean, one of the things uh, I would have noticed when I came in 1975 to Belfast was that uh, uh, teaching in the art college, fine art, uh, but once the students finished, I noticed they seemed to disappear and you never heard about them again or saw their work or whatever. And um, in my experience of being in America and Canada and Canada and living in Canada for a few years in the East Coast and then the West Coast, uh, I became very aware of uh, how the Canada Council was very, very supportive of artist-run organizations and the real benefits in this, you know, so that um, when I came here, I thought why, it would be good if we could get group studios for students who graduated, who'd finished, so that they could keep their practice going if they were working at part-time jobs and so So they would still have uh, a space to go to where they could do their engage their creativity and also maybe have a gallery space within the studios, you know, so that uh, they wouldn't be totally dependent on um, very, very limited official gallery spaces for their work. And um, so we had a meeting at Art and Research Exchange and then we tried to, uh, well, Put, <laughs> there was also no art magazine dealing with contemporary art at the time, you know, uh, experimental work. And so we managed to get a, an art magazine developed, Circa Art Magazine, dealing with contemporary issues, art issues in Ireland. Uh, and then we got group studio spaces set up. And then, you know, to, uh, the notion also of the benefit of having one foot within the art establishment and one foot without it out with it so that you could uh, use the street as your studio and also your gallery and one of the things about performance is if you have very very little money and you can't buy expensive art materials you can use your body as the material yeah and in the street you don't have to get some uh, <laughs> gallery curator to give you an exhibition you can give it yourself in public space and okay uh, uh, take responsibility for how and what you do in that situation you know this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a way that we, or at least I... Um, associate performance with kind of like moments of like political like unrest because it's like you know even in you know like the soviet union or something when a lot of ways of making art become like outlawed it's like well you like always have like a body and um until you don't anymore but <laughs> you usually have a body and um thinking about the parallels between um like I talked about like performance art versus theater and then 
performance art versus or and alongside with protest. So like you talk about like site specificity and these performances in public, which is also, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's like most, if not all cities have places like this that have significance that people, um, that people, um, people gather in. Um, I'm thinking like there's the, um, the Los Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, the mothers of the, uh, Mayo Plaza in um, Argentina, who it's like, like every, I think like every Sunday for like years, the mothers of all of these um, desaparecidos, people who were disappeared under um, the Videla dictatorship. I get the dictators confused. Um, in Argentina, it's like they dress in white and they have pictures of their, um, of like their loved ones, like continuing to like seek information about like their just like anything. Um, so there's this way that it's like, um, it's like performance and like bodies protest. These are ways of like actualizing, um, like potential within a space. Um, like I spend a lot of time thinking about Latin America where, um, many cities are built around like plazas that are kind of specifically for this purpose of people to kind of like, um, manifest and also like performance as a way of um, like keeping something like in memory. Um, so this is also something that um, it's like in I'm in Los Angeles right now where the city's had a history of kind of like you know, sometimes they'll like literally pave over like a place that used to be like a site of like remembrance or something and um, like performance as like a way of like keeping things like in, in memory, um, like making, like reliving them, keeping them present. Um, if you, if you guys feel that at all. Yeah, I would, I would agree strongly with that. I think there is a, a very, um, strong sensibility of aftermath, not just in Alistair's work, but in a lot of, um, Irish performance art um, and a friend of ours has just finished a PhD on perpetrator identity and actually sort of exploring the fact that the um, you know who we are when we're performing um, is, is is multiple like and, and it, we're not we're not necessarily the innocent or the victim you know so I think I think there's there's actually um, I, I really respect his research because he opens up um, that potentiality that that when when you're when you're performing, you're, you're sifting through like a number of identities, and and that also does relate to who you are, where you are. You know, I think back to you sort of earlier question that for when I'm traveling, I'm um, I'm often uncomfortable with the fact that you know you're flying in for a very short amount of time, and you you bring like a, you bring ignorance with you. You know, you there's there's so much that you can't fill in or you can't superficially you know pretend to have um, a kind of body of knowledge that you don't so you have to do the best with what you have and a kind of humility as well but I think that performance art and particularly the the, the kind of manner of, of Alistair's work it, it often um, does manifest into um, a sense of a vigil or a, a sort of sense of a ceremony that something is, is being marked and something is being held, but but also that it is being done in a very respectful way. So it's it's always it's, it's interesting to me how you know like a random audience 
can relate to something that's happening over several hours and the way that they they change in response to it because first of all they can just glimpse it and it can be quite flippant or it can be you know quite abrasive you know but then over time you know as people go by or, or equally if you're making performance in a hospital or, or some some kind of situation where you you're very still within a lot of like a lot of flux a lot of activity I've often had people come up to me at the end of a performance and you know, it, it's it's the cleaner, it's the caretaker, it's the person who's the real gatekeeper who actually notices you, you know, and, and notices what it is that is happening that is, um, you know, kind of creating a sort of dissonance in in, in otherwise the, the kind of habitual sort of behaviour that happens there. So I think, like, as Alistair was saying, there's, there's a responsibility when you're putting yourself into these positions. It's not casual. And how it uh, how it plays out is so much to do with um, the the way in which you conduct yourself and the way in which you are also open and receptive to the impact it may be having. You know, so it, it's this kind of um, reciprocal um, thing that is set in motion. That I think make, you know just makes it kind of like fascinating to make this kind of work. There's also you. Uh... When you travel and you you, you see, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by uh, just the sense of people on the street, how they are. You know, just uh, very often you can get a sense of uh, a town, a village, a city, a place, just from the, the aura, the atmosphere in the street, but how people are, how they behave. You can, and I'm, I'm interested in making work that has a kind of a, an empathy with difficulty that uh, many members of the public are going through. Uh, uh, ordinary, very ordinary, everyday, real situations they're living through and maybe trying to, uh, maybe not writing poetry about this, but with the visual aspect, you're trying to make visual poetics, visual poetry, using one's body, if you want, as the material, maybe some other materials in relation to the body, how one is in a space in relation to others. And for me, the art, the heart of it is in the quality of interrelations, the quality of inter, that for me, that's at the heart of the art. And that one's trying to engage that ongoingly, moment by moment, while making the work. And you don't have the security if you're doing it outside someplace necessarily that you might feel within a gallery, although I do some work in galleries as well, you know, and so on, and sometimes in a museum, but often in public space because there's a sense of um, the unpredictable also, you know, and being able to find how to embrace that and, and allow that to become part of the work, to allow the form of it, to, the work to be flexible enough to engage with uh, specifics in the locality, the public space where one happens to be. Not to compromise the work, to keep the core principle of the work, but to allow the form of it to be adaptable to specifics that are taking place that one couldn't perhaps foresee necessarily, but to include what's happening moment by moment, ongoingly. Mm -hmm. It's like um, there was like a bit in the 
in what I read of the book where it kind of talks about your um, relationship or like interest in like the like I Ching and um, like Buddhism and I was um, kind of I don't I don't know if you if you if you have anything you 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 want to say about that it it's, it seems like for a lot of artists who were working in kind of like the mid late 20th century it's like also a lot of um, artists in, in the U.S. also had a lot of a lot of those interests. Um, I'm not, I think in the U.S. we're inclined to think of that as maybe coming out of like the 60s and like counterculture or, um, yeah, I don't know how you like think about that or. Well, yeah, I became aware of that in the late 60s. I was a student at the Art Institute in Chicago and, you know, that that was a really important and (laughs) two-year experience for me, yeah. And it was a time of minimalism, and um, uh, I was playing with the notion of the fullness of emptiness and the emptiness of fullness, you know, and uh, so on. And um, a friend suggesting it sounds a bit like Zen, and uh, so I started reading up on that and so on. But I think a lot of the work in the States at the time, you know, with the Zen, Uh, people were interested in the philosophy. You know, some artists became interested, you know, in New York and so on. But not many did the actual Zazen meditation. And uh, I remember going out, uh, (laughs) moving from Chicago to Nova Scotia, then going out to Vancouver a few years later. And uh, my interest in Zen had developed, and I went to Rinzai Zen retreats where they'd give you koans, like a problem, mental problem to work on. How do you realize your true nature while painting? For instance, I got that one from there. Uh, And it took me two years to actually pass through this. You know, because and uh, it only came about through exhausting the intellect, examining all aspects of how to realize one's true nature. You had to manifest it physically, actually, not just talk it. You had to be it. And it only, it only, one only passed it and got official, you know, acceptance and clarity for having realized it uh, after one had completely exhausted all thought and conceptual thinking, not ignoring it, but moving beyond it, like stepping up beyond the top step of the ladder and moving, moving on. And um, that's when I realized one could use one's own total being as art material, as no separation between the artist and the artwork. Now, it's one thing to know this conceptually, and it's a different thing altogether to realize it experientially. And although in the States and in Canada, Zen was influential in the 60s and 70s. I think most of the artists never went through this actual physical, visceral experience, but stayed on the conceptual level. 
And the effects of that <coughs> have affected me ever since, up until the present. It's still the core of my practice. Yeah, it seems like there's sort of like a, a parallel <laughs> between that and like a different way in the present where, you know, we can think about like artists as being like coextensive um, with their work. We think about people like boys um, in this regard, but we also are in this moment, we're not just like performance artists, but it's like all artists. It's like we um, perhaps partially because of like social media, that it's like people's lives are like very visible and there's this kind of um, like uh, this, what we might cynically call the creation of kind of like a personal like brand or something that it's like all of your stuff can be gathered and kind of like um, has like coherence as like you. (laughs) And it's, I feel like this just has been happening like younger and younger. Like I had like first year college students recently who have like websites with like all their stuff. And I'm like, you're like 18. It's like, you don't need to be um, like um, marketing yourself or trying to like create this image of yourself like so so early on but I think through like professionalization and other like the rise of kind of MFA programs in the U.S. there's been like a big push on this like professionalization which it it seems kind of like the maybe like the dark side of like what you're talking about that it's like there's like a coextensiveness between you and your work and that can have this like um that can be like a really um like enlightening realization and it can also be a kind of like depressing realization like depending on how you go about it well there's a massive gap between uh there's a massive gap between appearance and actuality a lot of what happens in social media for me is just uh utterly vacuously superficial and people are so seduced by it i sometimes get a train back from a studio i work in and there's maybe 15 people waiting for the train about 12 of them are hooked over like that not paying attention to where they are how they are in relation but on their little phones and I think people think that they're using the technology, but to me, the, the technology is using them, and they're seduced by it and conditioned and manipulated, and I can see what's happening to our species. And for me, this is not... Uh, <laughs> this is no uh, realization. This is simply utter, utter manipulative... Uh, uh, it's evidence of manipulation of, of our species and we're doing it to ourselves we're doing it to ourselves we need to wake up how something looks is not how it is capital I S being is from the inside out not just the outside in Making performance art is not easier than being in a studio doing an oil painting. 
Your life can be at risk. You can get your throat cut. Yeah, this is also something I was thinking about that I feel like in performance art, there's this, um, well, with, with all art, it happens to a degree of this kind of like transgressive chic or something that, or like endurance type works where it's like, there are like, uh, this is something like I, there's like a, like an angry teenager inside of me. And it's like, whenever I see that like transgressive stuff, there's a part of me that is like, yes, like transgress, like break these boundaries. Like why do they exist? Um, but then we also, think it's like it's like to produce good like art um it isn't it's like maybe transgressing boundaries is like part of it maybe even a necessary part of it but it's not like just because you break a boundary doesn't to me necessarily mean that it's like art or that it's beautiful it it kind of it kind of arcs back to um what we were talking about like about poetics and like the the title of of, of, of the book. Um, so yeah, maybe if, if we want to have yeah. anything else to say about that or. Well, it's the quality of interrelations that, uh, for instance, in doing, I, I love doing the traditional oil painting and so on. And I was doing very well as a student, you know, I was getting top marks and all this kind of, you know, whatever, but I felt there was a hollowness about uh, external skill and dexterity, and so um, I was wanting to get something more earthy and real coming through from the inside out. You can see, you can, you can hear certain equivalences of what I'm suggesting in music, in sound, how different forms of music, different kinds of stuff. Uh, and the art, again, residing for me in the quality of interrelations and who, who made the rules about what constitute art materials? Why is oil paint regarded as art material, but dust on a tabletop not regarded as art material? You know, I want to question all the rules and all the theories and the philosophies Rules are made not only to be obeyed, but to be broken. But one has to assume responsibility for how one is in relation to other at all levels. What does it mean to be a human being alive? For me, this is a major issue. How does one assume responsibility for being alive in relation to others? How can one live one's life where one can uh, feel that one's being of benefit, benefit to self in relation to others? Yeah, I mean, those are questions that they they go far beyond like um, performance or what we what we might call art. It's like these are kind of like the bedrock, like ethical 
you know, since Greece, like how, how should I, how should I live in the world? Like, how should I conduct myself? How should I relate to others? Yeah. But I would maybe from, <laughs> from the various ups and downs and knocks and blows and different kinds of things I would have experienced throughout my life so far. Uh, these are the issues I would want to have manifest in the art I make. I think it's important to say too that a number of the chapters, I mean, all of the chapters are written by people who have experienced Alistair's work um, on a very deep level and over a very long period of time. So that we've prioritized um, practitioners and we prioritized um, people that have that kind of quality of having witnessed the work. And I use the word, you know, deliberately. Uh, and within all of that, there's also um, a very important like layer of thinking around pedagogy and unorthodox um, teaching and, and that, that way of, of um, kind of, you know, taking apart the institution uh, to, to a certain extent, not, um, not necessarily through um, an anarchic kind of like ranting, but, but through a, a sort of decentering of, of where the focus lies in, in terms of what, what the teaching is seeking to achieve. So I think, you know, um, Alistair continues to teach workshop, workshops across the world and, and certainly within uh, the Ulster University. The teaching had a very sort of profound impact um, because of this, this, this quality of almost like um, looking, looking underneath the table or looking behind the door, or, you know, re refusing to just comply to the, the idea of um, like fabrication and, and perfection. But I think, I think that a kind of ethos of care is something that comes through, um, perhaps from the '60s and from the Zen thinking as well. An idea of um, um, care for self and care for others being, being being intrinsic to how the work functions in the world. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that seems like as, as as good a place as any to like. To, to wind down our conversation. Um, I just um, had one uh, blurb I wanted to read for our friend, um, Karen Little, who's responsible for um, us coming together. So perhaps it's appropriate to end with her. Um, at the Online Public Performance Symposium, Flow, Embody, Insight 2022, registered attendees will receive a 30% discount uh, to this new monograph, Actional Poetics, As She, He, The Performance Actuations of Alastair McLennan, 1971-2020, to 2020, edited by Sandra Johnston, Jerry Driver, and Paula Blair, in addition to the live art monograph catalog by Intellect Books. Out of Sight is thrilled to partner with Intellect Books at this online symposium and experimental sound studio for a second year. To register for this online public performance art symposium, please visit flowsymposium.org. The symposium includes four practice-based workshops in public performance art practices, 11 performative lectures uh, or in artist presentations with the opportunity to perform in week three. Sandra Johnson, Alistair McLennan, and Brian Patterson will also be in discussion about this new book on June um, 17th, 18th, and 19th, there will be a free public performance weekend that will be hosted on Experimental Sound Studios, uh, Twitch TV channel, um, Experimentals underscore sound underscore studio. Um, so thank you all for um, taking the time to talk to me today. And um, I look forward to seeing this in print. <laughs>